This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Welcome to Rand's Congressional Monthly Briefing Series. This briefing today is a little bit unusual for our series. It focuses on an issue that's on the ballot in California in November, which would make California the first place in the world to legalize the manufacture, distribution, and production of marijuana. We address the questions of how legalization might affect public budgets and how it might affect marijuana consumption. Last week, we released this report and we briefed uh, California members and staff back in the district who were there for the recess. And this week, we are having a briefing in D.C., and we're also briefing California staff and committee staff here. This week, Bo Kilmer will be uh, doing the briefings in D.C. This briefing is being recorded. It's part of a videotaped multimedia series that you can get tomorrow afternoon at www.ran.org. And you can listen to it by subscribing to iTunes. I know everyone is interested in the results of this study, so I'll turn it over to Bo. All right, well, thank you, Shirley, and good afternoon. Shirley said my name is Bo Kilmer, and I'm the co-director of the RAND Drug Policy Research Center. For more than 20 years, we've been doing work on a variety of issues related to substance use and drug policy. We have some researchers who are developing innovative prevention programs, others that have been doing analyses, looking at racial disparities in marijuana laws and how they're being enforced, We've got other folks who are doing high-level statistical analyses of data from undercover drug busts. With all of these projects, the goal is to provide objective research and analysis to decision makers. And today, today I want to talk about a project that I've been working on, uh, looking at marijuana legalization in California. And actually, for this project, it really has been a team effort. And I got to work with a great team. I got to work with John Calkins at Carnegie Mellon, Peter Reuter at University of Maryland. Both of them are in the audience, and they're going to come up when we do the Q&A session. I also got to work with Rosalie Pakula, who's the other co-director of the RAND Drug Policy Research Center. And I, also got, and I was able to work with Rob McCoon at UC Berkeley. And also I should say that there were a number of students at Carnegie Mellon University who donated their time to help provide a lot of the background research. And we wouldn't have been able to do this without them. So thanks to all of you. Now, as many of you know, marijuana legalization is a hot topic in California right now. And most of the focus is on two different proposals. The first proposal is actually a bill being considered in the Assembly, Assembly Bill uh, 2254, also referred to as the Amiano Bill. And what this bill would do is that it would legalize marijuana for those 21 and older. It would have the State Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control uh, be in charge or uh, regulate the uh, production and the distribution. And initially, there would be a $50 an ounce excise tax per ounce for marijuana. The California Board of Equalization uh, did an analysis last year of the Amiano bill, and they found that uh, at $50 an ounce, uh, this, uh, um, each year, $1.4 billion will come in, in tax revenue. Um, the other uh, proposal that's being considered is the Regulate, Control, and Tax Cannabis Proposition, which will actually be on the November 2010 ballot. Uh, this would also legalize uh, uh, marijuana for those over 21, and it would also allow individuals to have their own five-by-five five plots in, uh, in their own homes. And what's different about the ballot initiative is that instead of having state regulation, it would allow each local jurisdiction to come up with its own policies with respect to what the taxes should be and what the regulatory regime should be. 
So I want to make it very clear, and Shirley mentioned this, that no, in, in no other place has, uh, I mean, have we gone this far? Or, I mean, has marijuana been legalized? I mean, a lot of people like to talk about the Netherlands. Like, oh, well, you know, it's legalized over there. It's not. The production is not legal. Yeah, you can walk into a coffee shop and buy five grams, but it's, illegal in, it's legal in the front door, but it's actually illegal in the back door. So what's being proposed in California actually is revolutionary. So the goal, for this, um, the goal of this project was to really focus on two different pieces, how marijuana legalization would influence, uh, could possibly influence the consumption of marijuana in California, and then also looking at how it influenced public budgets. Um, our process for doing this was fairly straightforward and systematic. We came up with a model trying to figure out what we think would actually, you know, how these decisions to legalize would influence the outcomes that we care about. We did the research trying to figure out, you know, what the best estimates would be for those input parameters. And then we assessed the results based on, uh, you know, d depending on what the different assumptions that were made because it in order to do this, it requires a lot of assumptions. I want to make it very clear that we did not do a formal cost-benefit analysis of marijuana legalization. Our goal wasn't to come out and say, you know, this would be a good idea or a bad idea for California. Same thing with the ballot initiative, too. You know, our goal is not to tell you how to vote. I mean, RAND generally does not take positions on ballot initiatives or bills. Our idea was really just try to move some of the debate past the rhetoric and actually try to provide some insights about what could happen with consumption and budgets. So to, uh, to preview the uh, key results, um, for the first point is that we expect there to be a large price drop, um, somewhere around the, on the order of 80%. The second insight is that we do expect consumption will increase, but it's very unclear how much. The third point is that uh, we, do, we do have to worry about tax evasion if the taxes are set too high. The fourth point is with respect to criminal justice expenditures and how much California, the state and local government, spend on, uh, on enforcing marijuana laws. And the takeaway here is that number is in the millions, not in the billions. And finally, we have the Board of Equalization estimate of $1.4 billion. We show that depending on your assumptions, we, we, you could imagine scenarios where that number could be dramatically lower or dramatically larger. So the briefing is going to focus on two, uh, two questions. How do we build this model? And then I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time being very specific about the, uh, those five key insights. So we started with a logic model, where as you can see, the, uh, those blue boxes on the left, those are kind of the, uh, the choice variables. You know, you have a choice, the governments have a choice to be able to, you know, remove the penalties for sales, remove the penalties for possession, and then they also have to make a decision about um, what, the, what the regulatory regime would be, what the taxes would be, and then so then the outcome variables are the octagons on the right, right? And so the only two that we're focusing on today are marijuana consumption and then public budgets. And as you would expect, I mean, these policy decisions have many direct and indirect effects. And the goal today is, I'm not going to walk you through each of these, um, we'd, we'd be here for hours. But what I want you to know is that for each of these kind of intermediary boxes, we went and we, we had to come up with estimates and ranges. So, I mean, we evaluated the peer-reviewed peer literature when it was available. Uh, we looked at the gray literature. We talked to farmers, visited greenhouses. We did a number of things in order to get good estimates for each of these boxes. And I should say that it, that's important because you need those input parameters in order to get the final results. But actually, the process of just kind of doing the reviews and coming up with estimates for these intermediary boxes it was informative in and of itself. So now let's spend some time talking about the insights. And the, the kind of one of the main insights is that we would expect that the price to drop dramatically post-legalization. And so for right now, uh, an ounce of Cinsamia, which is kind of the high-quality marijuana in California, it'll run you between $300 and $450 an ounce. 
And this is a, so for the analysis, we actually look at everything with respect to Sensimia. And so we actually have to do some conversions and come up with Sensimia equivalents. Uh, but right now it runs between, you know, 300 to 450. And now we expect this to drop considerably uh, post-legalization. But in order to begin to doing these calculations, you actually have to make some assumptions about, well, what would production look like? And we just don't know. So we considered four different models. One being, you know, you could allow five by five plots being grown in homes. Another option is that you could allow grow houses where most of the house would be used for producing marijuana. There also could be large greenhouses. You can imagine unfettered farms. I mean, so we kind of looked at the costs associated with all of these, but for the analysis, we actually had to pick one. And so we ended up focusing most of our attention on the grow houses, simply because we thought that if the goal was to raise revenue, allowing everyone to have these five by five plots, that's not, that's not efficient, that's not gonna generate a lot of money. Um, while we don't, know what the federal, we don't know what the federal government's going to do, we do expect that they probably would have some issues with having large greenhouses or unfettered farms running up and down I-5. So as I said, I want to be very clear that we don't know what the federal government is going to do. But so for this, we ended up focusing on the grow house for the analyses. And as I said, there are a number of reasons why we would expect the price to decrease. First of all, we're getting rid of a lot of the risk. When you purchase cocaine, when you purchase heroin, when you purchase marijuana, a lot of what you're paying for is to actually compensate the drug dealer and everyone else involved for the risks that they undertook. You know, for risk of being arrested, risk of being arrested, risk of uh, being robbed. So that would go away post-legalization. You also have to think about automation as well. I mean, actually trimming the buds is pretty labor-intensive. And there now are, I mean, you've got machines out there which can really expedite the process. And you can imagine those machines being more affordable and just more available. I mean, you could rent them as opposed to having to buy them post-legalization. Third, there will also be economies of scale, right? Instead of having a person having a grow house or two grow houses, you can imagine individuals with 15, 16 grow houses. So then you're actually able to buy the uh, you know, buy the fertilizer and the other materials in bulk. And so, but then, so those were the reasons why we thought the price was going to go down. But then we actually went and tried to figure it out, what it would cost to, you know, to buy these materials, what the electricity would be. And we ended up coming out with, it, if you were to do this in a grow house, it would run you about 200 to $400 for a pound. That's what it would cost to make. But then if you're thinking about le uh, uh, what the price would be in stores, I mean, you have to think about wholesaler markups, retailer markups, distribution costs. And, um, and in the end, we find that the pre-tax, that we think post-legalization, the pre-tax uh, retail price could be less than, less than $40 an ounce. That's a big difference from the 300 to 450 um, that we currently see right now. The second point, um, and just to be clear, I mean, others have tried to come up with similar estimates. You know, Board of Equalization, um, Jeff Myron, they both think that the price would drop about 50%. Uh, the head of the California chapter of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws uh, came out and testified last year that if you actually were to, if you had this unregulated market, uh, the price could drop from about $300 an ounce to just a few dollars an ounce. So our, the estimates that we come with are in the range of some of the others that, have, uh, that are out there in the literature. The second point I want to make is that we know that consumption is going to increase, but it's unclear by how much. And so now there are two reasons why we, expect, why we would expect legalization to uh, increase consumption. The first would be these non-price effects, right? You can imagine that for some folks there will be this change in stigma. That could be more advertising, more promotion. So if, uh, just for that, we would expect that consumption to increase. But you also have to think about these large price effects. I mean, when the price drops, we know that consumers are sensitive to the price. They're going to consume more. So the idea, what we were trying to do is trying to figure out, okay, with such a large price drop, what would actually be the subsequent increase in use? 
And this takes us back to, uh, uh, you know, back to Ecom 101 in terms of in order to be able to do that, you really have to have information about what the demand curve for marijuana looks like. I mean, we're not talking about marginal changes here. These are large changes. So it actually requires that you know what the shape of the demand curve looks like. Thing is, we don't know what the shape of the demand curve looks like for marijuana. So what we did for our analyses is we considered two types of demand curves, constant elasticity and linear, that are commonly referred to in introductory econ books. They are used in a lot of policy analyses. And we tried to just show, well, how would our results differ if we kept everything the same, but then we just changed what the demand curve looked like? And as you can see here, focus for the moment on the blue line, the linear demand. And so on the, y, on the y-axis here, you actually have, this is the, the projected increase in marijuana consumption post-legalization. On the x-axis, this is actually the percent of consumption that we think would evade sales taxes. Because we actually don't know what the tax rate would be. We don't know how much tax evasion there would be. But if you just focus on that for that linear curve and look at it at 0% uh, evasion, so right when it crosses the y-axis, you can see that if you assume that there's going to be a $50 an ounce tax, no tax evasion, a linear demand curve, and an infinitely elastic supply curve, you would see that uh, we would project uh, consumption to increase 76% post-legalization. Now keep everything the same and now just shift, now change the type of demand curve you're considering. Not linear, now just use this constant elasticity demand curve. And you can see at the same amount of tax evasion that you would actually project the increase to be 151%. Now we're not claiming that either of these demand curves is actually correct. We just do this to highlight that there's a lot of uncertainty. So the assumptions that one makes about the demand curve, the shape of the demand curve, really will make a difference in terms of what your final uh, projections would be. I mean, that being said, we expect it to increase, but it's really unclear how much. The third point I want to make is that we really do have to worry about tax evasion if the tax rates are set too high. And for this, it's a, kind of a comparable good to look at would be tobacco. We know that with tobacco, when the taxes are too high, people try to evade them, try to get it, you know, get the tobacco or cigarettes off the internet or from an Indian reservation. And there's some great examples in Canada where a couple provinces, uh, they added a $3 a pack tax to uh, two, uh, two cigarettes. And there ended up being so much tax evasion that they actually had to repeal the taxes. And so, and we do know that to some extent that uh, tobacco tax evasion does happen in California. The estimates vary quite a bit. Uh, the estimates from the public health folks tend to put it at close to one to 4%. Uh, we know that the Board of Equalization about 10 years ago came out with an estimate putting it between 12 to 27%. We're not entirely clear what that exact amount is, but we know that it does happen. This is important because in no state is the excise tax for an ounce of tobacco more than $5. Now, what's being proposed in the Amiano bill is initially a tax of $50 an ounce. That's a large difference there. And especially if you start thinking about this, forget about ounces for the moment, start thinking about this with respect to pounds. The financial reward for evading taxes on a pound would be between $800 to $850. That in and of itself is more than it costs to buy a pound coming from Mexico right now. That's a lot. So, that, I mean, that being said, we, we still don't come up with a precise estimate of what we think the tax evasion rate is going to be, but we do realize that it is going to be, it, it's something that people should be thinking about when you're setting these taxes. And so, I mean, you, you do have the $50 initially with the Amiano bill, but with the ballot initiative, it's actually up to each local government about what they want the tax rate to be. Fourth point is focusing on criminal justice expenditures. And there are a lot of people that like to say, well, if we were to legalize marijuana, we would save a lot of money in terms of, you know, on, on the criminal justice side, and we could use that money for other goods. We could put that money towards education, put that money towards treatment. Um, there are estimates out there of the, uh, about how much California spends um, 
on you know, dealing with uh, marijuana offenders at the state and local level, two, uh, two different uh, estimates. One estimate out there puts it at $200 million a year. That is, that's how much it's spent. There's another estimate out there that puts it at close to $2 billion, claiming that $2 billion is spent each year in, just on California, just state and local costs for enforcing marijuana laws. That's an order of magnitude difference. So we just decided to do our own analysis here and you know, actually get information on the number of people arrested, number of people incarcerated, try to get information about what happened with people as they were adjudicated, put some unit costs on there. And our best estimates are that, uh, uh, that California spends probably less than $300 million a year enforcing marijuana costs. And now it's important, I mean, some people like to call these savings, but you have to realize that if, these, if the local law enforcement or the, you know, the prisons, if they're not spending this money on marijuana offenders, that doesn't mean that money just goes back to the general fund. Now, it could be the case that that money is actually spent on, you know, more efficiently. I mean, that's an empirical question that we didn't tackle. But it's important to realize that that money probably is not going to go back to the general fund to be used for other, uh, you know, other services. And the final point I want to make is that we think the revenues could be dramatically lower or dramatically higher than the $1.4 billion estimate that the Board of Equalization came out with. And that is, you know, and this is the same, same chart as before, but instead of looking at consumption, this is looking at uh, uh, revenues. And you can just see, as you, moved, you know, move to the right of the x-axis, as there's more tax evasion, as that rate gets larger, the amount of money coming in uh, goes down. That just makes sense. It's also important to note that when tax evasion, when, when you have more tax evasion, not only does that reduce the amount of money coming into the state and local government, it also reduces the price faced by consumers and potential consumers too. That's something you have to account for when you're doing these types of analyses. But there's also a lot of uncertainty here with respect to the, what the federal government's going to do. We don't know. On one hand, the federal government could step up enforcement and you know, put more resources into enforcing marijuana laws. They could also do what they did in the 1980s when they wanted to raise the minimum legal drinking age. They didn't pass a law that said it had to be 21 for everyone. They said if you want to get all of your federal highway funds, your minimum legal drinking age better be 21. That could potentially happen, we don't know. On the other hand, if the federal government was more late, it was, you know, kind of stayed away from this debate, there actually is a lot of money that could be made by exporting marijuana from California to other states. Um, and so in addition to the report you have here, we actually have nine other working papers online which provide all of the different analyses. And one analysis that was done um, by John Calkins and Brittany Bond, it actually tried to figure out what the smuggling costs would be in terms of smuggling, um, smuggling marijuana out of California. And even if you, you know, we know the price is going to drop, you put that $50, assume there's a $50 tax, then you even account for smuggling costs. The Cincinnati grown here in California, the price it would still be competitive in a lot of the country. So there could be actually be a lot of money to be made. Now, would the federal government go for that or the other states? That's entirely unclear. But we just wanted to make it clear that this $1.4 billion, you can imagine scenarios that are dramatically lower or dramatically higher. So to conclude, decision makers need to be very skeptical of estimates that claim precision. I mean, we came into this hoping that we'd be able to come up with some more point estimates with respect to consumption and revenues, and we weren't able to. Um, there's substantial uncertainty around all of these uh, parameters. We do expect consumption to increase, but I want to be very clear that we don't know how much uh, we don't know how much it will increase. I mean, we can't rule out our models with our models. We cannot rule out increases of 50 to 100 percent, perhaps higher, but we don't really know. But one thing to kind of keep in mind here is if you're thinking about well, what would the world look like if use were to increase 50 percent 
or if use were to increase 100%? Well, if use were to increase 100%, we'd be back to where we were in 1978. In 1978, the prevalence rate was twice as high as it is today. Now granted, things are, the marijuana today is stronger, and uh, we know that society is a little bit different. You know, we have less disco. Um, there are a number of, you know, it's, but I mean, so, and we're, so we're, not make, we're not claiming that we think it is going to be 100%, there's going to be this doubling, but it's something to keep in mind. I mean, there are going to be more studies coming out over the next four months, so when you're kind of, when you're reading them and you're trying to figure out, well, wh what does this increase mean? We, for us, this served as a nice bright line. And the final point I want to make is that the evidence base for analysis is severely limited here. Realize that when we were able to go to the peer-reviewed literature, most of what we had to do is we had to focus on studies that focus on marginal changes. You know, when there's a $3 increase in the price of marijuana, how does that influence consumption? You know, economics literature is focused on marginal changes. Legalization of marijuana in California would not be a marginal change. So it actually calls into question how useful some of those other studies are in terms of helping us predict what would happen post-legalization. So with that, I will close. I look forward to your questions and comments. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.